You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. together beginning at verse 29. The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to your word, and this is the most important part of what we do as we gather together, and that is to hear from you in the text of Scripture. We thank you that you have spoken. We thank you that you have made yourself clear. We thank you that you also give us the ability to understand that. And we pray, Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher today, that you would turn our eyes and our attention away from vain things and establish your word to us as that which produces reverence for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The other night as I was drifting off to sleep, I was thinking about this text that's before us this morning, as I often do as I'm dozing off to sleep. Um, You get to sleep during my sermons. I get to sleep while I'm preparing my sermons. And so as I was thinking about it, it was a thought that kind of suddenly occurred to me, and it was something that I had not noticed before. And I suddenly realized that we are now, this will be Sermon 13, I think, in the Gospel of John. We are fully halfway through the first chapter and we have yet to see Jesus step onto the scene in this book. You notice that? I mean, it's not that we haven't talked about Jesus. We have. We have talked about Him being the Word made flesh. We've talked about His glories, His attributes, His person, His equality with the Father, the fact that He's the Creator of all things. Uh, he is full of grace and full of truth, the only begotten God who is Himself in the bosom of the Father and has revealed the Father to us. But in the story of John, Jesus hasn't even entered into the scene yet, as it were. And He doesn't do that until... Verse 29, and I hate it when I'm drifting off to sleep and thoughts like that pop into my mind because then I'm wide awake again for a long period of time trying to ask myself, what is the significance of that? Why is that there? And what might that be? Why might that be? And I don't have any answers for you. I did lose quite a bit of sleep over it, but I was thinking perhaps it is because John has, and I mean John, the author of the gospel now, John has been building a little bit of suspense and anticipation, as it were. If you just started reading this and you had never read the Gospel of John before, you would start to say to yourself, you know, this writer is really a good writer because a good writer knows how to sort of set the stage and bring in some essential characters and sort of build the environment and then wait as long as he can until the main character of the story sort of enters into the scene, enters into the story, and then when the main character finally enters into the story, there is a sense of anticipation. And that's what we get with Jesus stepping into the Gospel of John. It's not until verse 29 that John finally sees Jesus 
coming toward him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And up until that point, we have heard about this one who is God, who is with God, who is light, who is life, who is full of grace, full of truth, who gives light to all men, gives life to all men, and whose name we must believe in order to have eternal life. He's equal with the Father. He has revealed the Father. He's full of grace, full of truth. We learn all of this about him. And then there's this sort of sense of anticipation. When he finally steps on the scene, what is he going to look like? What is he going to act like? How is he going to behave? What is he going to say? How is John going to introduce this character? And then when he finally does, his introduction is very unique. It's very startling. It would have sounded very odd to those who originally heard it. We've become familiar with those words. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we're going to be looking at verse 29 today. And I just want to remind you of sort of the context in which this occurs. The one who says this is John the Baptist, who is himself the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, whose job was to testify to the light. He's not the light, but his job is to bear witness to the light, who is Christ. Now, the priests and the Levites send people out into the wilderness to where John is baptizing, and they ask him, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he says, no, I'm not any of those. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Who then are you so that we could tell those who sent us out here, we've got to bring back something to them. So John says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3, who has come to prepare the way of the Lord. Make ready to see your God. But then the Jews asked the very next question that was on their mind, which is, which would be the most logical question. Look, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah, why are you doing that which the Christ or Elijah should be doing, which is baptizing? And this was pointed out to me last week, and I forgot to mention this um, because I hadn't thought of this, but it's obvious from the text. Do you notice that they didn't ask them, what is it that you're doing? They were familiar with baptism, right? If John had pioneered this practice of baptism, the priests and Levites said, what are you doing? Dunking people, sprinkling people, pouring people, immersing people, however it is that he was doing it. What are you doing doing that? They understood what baptism was. And so they asked him, why are you baptizing? That's something that belongs to the Christ. That's something that belongs to Elijah. You've just denied that you are the Christ or denied that you're Elijah. Why then are you doing what we'd expect them to be doing? What warrant do you have? What right do you have? What authority do you have to baptize if you're not those men? Then John gives the reason. He says, I baptize with water, but there is one standing among you. And that is his ministry. He talks about his baptism, points to Christ. And that brings us to verse 29, when finally, finally, Jesus gets to step on the scene. You notice the beginning of verse 29 says this happened the next day. I told you several weeks ago that there is marked off in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the Gospel of John seven days where John carefully chronicles the unfolding of this one week. This one week on the first day, the priests and the Levites come out. Verse 29, so now we've moved on to day two of this first week. It is on the next day that John sees Jesus coming toward him. Now, I don't know if the priests and the Levites were there at that time, if they had stayed over and they were sort of watching what was unfolding the next day. I don't know if they had gone back, but there is a crowd that is there, and that is where John introduces Jesus. Now, this takes place after, remember, Jesus' baptism, because John makes reference to that later in the passage, and it takes place after his temptation. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and then Mark chapter 1 says, immediately the Spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tempted. After the temptation, Jesus comes back into Judea, back from the wilderness, presumably back to where he was baptized by John. And as he is approaching John, John says, behold, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
That statement is loaded, I mean loaded, with theological implications and significance. And we're going to notice there the language of, of three things. Number one, sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God. Second, substitution. Who takes away the sin. And third, of sufficiency. It is the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sacrifice, substitution, and sufficiency. All packed in that little statement that John gives as he introduces Jesus. Let's look at the language of sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Now friends, you and I, when we hear that phrase, you and I, instantly we connect that with Jesus. We know who that applies to. We are familiar with the imagery. We are familiar with the words. We are familiar with the pictures and the, and the images that that brings into our mind. But that was not how Jews expected their Messiah to be introduced. Behold the Lamb of God. That would have made little to no sense to those who were standing around whose expectation was something quite different. And yet John calls Him the Lamb of God. And this is the first of a series of titles that Jesus has given in chapter 1. And I want you to notice it. I just want your eyes to sort of go down through the passage with me. And I want you to see all of the things that Jesus has called in John chapter 1. Because after describing Him as God in flesh, in verses 1 through 18, John now gives title after title to Jesus. And we'll come to each one in due course, over the course of time. But He gives title after title to Jesus, which indicate who He is and what He came to do. Look at verse, well, verse, the first one's in verse 29 where He's called the Lamb of God. Down in verse 34, you see Him called the Son of God. In verse 36, He's called the Lamb of God again. In verse 38, He's called Rabbi. In verse 41, He is called the Messiah. In verse 42, sorry, 45, He's called Jesus of Nazareth and the Son of God. In verse 49, He is called Rabbi, Son of God, and King of Israel. And then in verse 51, the Son of Man. It's quite a list of titles, is it not? It is almost as if John intentionally takes all of these things that Jesus was known by and he sort of crams them into this the first chapter as people recognize him as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David, the King of Israel, Rabbi, Teacher, Messiah. All of these are all wrapped up in Jesus. So we're just looking today at the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Those are words that let, let me let me try and put you into a Jewish mind so that you could hear that from a Jewish perspective. They were not expecting their Messiah to be introduced as the Lamb of God. They were expecting their Messiah to be introduced as the King of Israel. And John, when he introduces him, introduces him as the Lamb of God. Now, if you were standing there and you had listened to John say to you, look, there's one coming after me who is so superior to me, I'm not even worthy to do the most menial of tasks, which is to unloosen a sandal. And there is one coming after me who is so exalted, so preeminent, so superior, so infinitely great, that I am not worthy to even unloose his sandal strap. This is the one of whom the Old Testament predicted, and I am here to announce that he has finally arrived. And if you were a Jew who listened to all of that, you would have said to yourself, great, we cannot wait for the king to show up. We want him. We want him here. We want him now. It is time for Him to overthrow the rule of Rome and establish the long-awaited kingdom with the throne of David right at the center of the world and deliver us from Gentile power. We need a ruler. We need a political revolutionary. We need somebody who is a leader, who is powerful, who will come in the clouds of heaven and deliver us from political oppression and set us all free. Behold the Lamb of God. What? 
What kind of a bait and switch is that? You've told us about one who is preeminent and superior. And you introduce him in language that speaks of death and sacrifice and blood and weakness and smallness. It's kind of shocking to us too, isn't it? I mean, you read the first part of chapter 1 and what do you expect? There is one who is equal with God, the creator of all things, full of grace, full of truth, the full revelation of the Father. And he steps onto the scene and how is he introduced? Like a lamb. Like a lamb. That's anticlimactic unless you understand what is wrapped up with the term lamb. But lamb of God is certainly not how any Jew standing there would have expected. Their long-awaited son of David, king of Israel, rabbi, teacher, Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one to be introduced. Maybe as a king, maybe as a prophet, maybe as a leader, maybe as a great man, maybe as the Christ, but not as a lamb. Never as a lamb. Totally unexpected. And yet that's how John introduces him in the, in the terminology of sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there's some question as to what, what Lamb does John have in mind? When he calls Jesus the Lamb of God, is he drawing a line or a connection to some Old Testament picture, some Old Testament sacrifice, some individual uh, or some, some picture in the Old Testament that we would be familiar with? Do you realize that, and I didn't know this until this week, the term Lamb of God is not used anywhere else in Scripture. It's used here in John chapter 1. Verse 29, it's used again in chapter 1, verse 36. But outside John the Baptist and outside the uh, book of John, the term Lamb of God never occurs. Jesus is called the Lamb, but never the Lamb of God. And so it's a bit difficult to say, well, what Lamb of God does he does John have in mind that he's trying to connect the dot between this Lamb and Jesus? And three really good suggestions have been offered, and I'll, I'll give you what they are. Actually, probably about a dozen suggestions have been offered, but only three of them really um, are, up, are worth their mustard. I'll give you those three. First, some have suggested or seen in here a reference to the Passover lamb. That Jesus is the Passover lamb. And they would point out, as you find out midway through the end, uh, uh, sorry, midway through chapter 2, that at this point, when John introduces him, the Passover was at hand. It was very near. Very near to the time of the Passover in the spring. And so, perhaps the idea of Passover and Passover sacrifice was on the Jewish mind. And so as John introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God, he's alluding to the Passover sacrifice because it was near. That was what was on everybody's mind. Probably a lot of people already trickling into the land of Judea to celebrate Passover. Now that's possible. First Corinthians chapter 5, I think it is, says that Jesus is our Passover sacrifice for us. The only problem with that is that John, when he says the Lamb of God, doesn't use the typical technical word that speaks of the Passover sacrifice. So it may not be a direct allusion to that. Some have suggested, second, that what John had in mind was the daily sacrifices. There was a sacrifice in the morning, first thing in the morning. There was a sacrifice last thing in the evening before sunset. And this went on every day, and the Jews were familiar with the daily sacrifices when they would bring a lamb in and they would sacrifice in the morning and in the evening. And so some have suggested that John here is alluding to the daily sacrifices that went on in the temple and that the Jews being so familiar with the daily sacrifice, that would have been the first thing that they thought of. That's possible. The only problem is that the daily sacrifices are never called the Lamb of God. There's a third possibility, and this one I'm a bit partial to. I like this one. And that is that what John has in mind is the Lamb spoken of in Isaiah 53. Do you remember the Lamb in Isaiah 53? Let me read Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 7. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. That is obviously speaking of Jesus. The next phrase, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. Some people say John is alluding to the sheep, the lamb of Isaiah 53. I think that's possible. Remember how John introduced his own ministry? I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And that comes from Isaiah chapter 40, which introduces that whole last section of Isaiah, whose point is to show that there was one coming who was going to be the suffering servant, who would be the servant of the Lord, perfectly do the Lord's will, offer himself as a sacrifice to bear the sins of many. So it's possible that John is alluding to Isaiah 53. If I had to choose between the three, I would pick Isaiah 53. is probably what John had in mind. But listen, I would side with other scholars and commentators who say, look, what John has in mind is not any one sacrifice, but the whole imagery of sacrifice itself. It's not one lamb, one sacrifice, one offering that he has in mind. It's the whole sacrificial system because Jesus is the fulfillment not just of the Passover, not just of the daily sacrifices, not just of Isaiah 53. He is the Lamb of God who is Himself the fulfillment of every sacrifice, every feast, everything in the Old Testament pointed forward to Him. It was a type, it was a shadow, it was an image, it was a picture, it was intended to point to Him. And He is the fulfillment of all of them. And so when John calls Him the Lamb of God, he doesn't have in mind just one particular Lamb. He has in mind the whole imagery of sacrifice This is the one who is himself the sacrifice of God. That everything in the Old Testament pointed forward to and typified and signified and was designed to to describe for us so we would know him when he showed up. That's the imagery there. It's all of the Old Testament sacrifice that is being alluded to. Even though John doesn't call Jesus the Lamb of God outside of the book of John, he calls him the Lamb of God all the way through the book of Revelation. In fact, in the book of Revelation, and I think this is, is marvelous, that word lamb is just all over the book. All over the book. That is John's favorite title to refer to Jesus as the exalted Son of God in heaven today. Let me give you a couple of examples. Revelation 5.6, I saw between the throne and their elders a lamb standing as if slain. Revelation 6.9, when the lamb broke the fifth seal... I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony that they had maintained. Revelation 7.10, they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 7.17, the Lamb is in the center of the throne and will be their shepherd. Revelation 14.4, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. All of these are references to Christ. You can see it in Revelation 14.10, 15.3, 17.14, 19.9, 21, verses 22 and 23. Revelation 22, verse 1 says, They showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And then the last reference to the Lamb of God, Revelation 22, verse 3, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him there. It's the imagery that was familiar to the New Testament church. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb without spot and blemish, the blood of Christ. He's the Lamb of God. 
He is the Lamb who is worthy. He is the Lamb who is exalted. He is the Lamb who is God. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb who is worthy to open the seals and to pour out its judgments. He is the Lamb who by His blood has redeemed and purchased men and women from every tongue, every tribe, every kindred, every nation, every continent on the face of this globe. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the imagery of sacrifice. Second, I want you to notice the language of substitution. He takes away the sin. He takes it away. Now, the words that are used there do not speak of one person being a substitute for another. It speaks of atonement. It speaks of the expiation, the taking away of sin, which is the result of the atonement. And that taking away of sin is the, is the result of His atonement being substitutionary. When you speak of the death of Christ on the cross, you always have to keep in mind His death was a substitute. It was a substitute. And if your view of the cross is anything less than substitutionary, you have an inadequate and wrong and weak and insipid view of the cross. His death was not just the death of a political revolutionary who, who died for a cause. He was not the death of a, of a religious reformer who wouldn't be listened to by the elite of his day. His death was not just somebody who happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. He came to bear sin, to die as a substitute. That was the language of Isaiah. Our griefs, our sins, our iniquities He bore. God caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on Him. And He bore, 1 Peter chapter 2 says, our sins in His own body on the tree. He died as a substitute. He died as my substitute. In my place, He died. Hebrews chapter 9 Hebrews chapter 9 says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation. He was offered to bear the sins of many. He died as a substitute. Now listen, Jesus did not die in order to make salvation possible. He died in order to secure salvation. He did not die and in His death simply deposit forgiveness in a heavenly bank account that you can draw on if and when you need it, and if and when you feel like you want to. He died in the place of all of those who will trust Him. He died as a substitute and bore my sin. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I bear my sin no more. Because He bore all of it. He bore all of my sin. My past sin, my present sin, and my future sin was all laid on Him on the cross. And He died as a substitute in my place. He took my sins away. And the word literally means to pick up, to bear away, and to remove it. How does the Son of God take my sins away? To bear them away. He takes them away by bearing them in His own body on the cross. By bearing them as my substitute. You guys understand the imagery of a substitutionary atonement? A substitutionary sacrifice? If you think Jesus just died to make forgiveness something up there that He can sort of dole out, sort of to give Him permission to forgive, if you will, then your image of the cross is completely inadequate. He died as a substitute. He died in the place of you and in the place of me. He died in the place of all those who will ever believe on Him for salvation, ever. For all the Old Testament saints who were looking forward to a Messiah, who were justified and forgiven, and they were waiting for the sin-bearer to come and deal with their sin, He died in their place. 
And he died in the place of all of those who are alive today and have ever lived or ever will live who have looked to the Messiah and put their faith in a God who justifies the ungodly. He died in the place of all of those Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, Israel, the church. He died in our place as our substitute. And friends, that was our greatest need. See, my greatest need was not for a king. I got a king out of the deal. He will establish his kingdom. I don't deny that. But my greatest need is not for a king. My greatest need is not for a prophet, not for a moral teacher. My greatest need is not for a friend, not for a political revolutionary, not for a social reformer. Do you know what our greatest need is? Our greatest need is for a sin bearer. That's the greatest need I have. You and I know that our sins piled up over our head and the weight of the guilt is more than we can bear. And anybody in their right mind who understands their condition before God says, if I get one thing, if I need anything, it is this. I need somebody to bear my sin in my place, to bear the wrath of God for me so that I don't have to. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's substitution. It is sacrifice. It is substitution. And third, it is the language of sufficiency. It's for the world. He died to take away the sin of the world. Now, in what sense does Jesus Christ take away the sin of the world, the cosmos? You remember I gave you some, some meanings for the word cosmos or world earlier in the Gospel of John chapter 1 where it says He came into the world and the world did not know Him. The world didn't receive Him. We talked about the fact that in, those, in any context, when you're doing a study in the Bible, you always have to keep in mind that it's the context that determines the meaning of a word because the word world, like a lot of other words in Greek, have a number of different meanings, a number of different shades of meanings. And so you, we, you and I are not free to read into the text whatever our mind thinks we want it to mean by world. Nor are we free to read into the text whatever we think it should mean by world. We have to ask ourselves, what does John mean when he speaks of the world in any one of his contexts? There are three different, basically sort of three categories into which the word world uh, might fall. Different categories of meanings. Number one, cosmos is used to describe the physical universe, the created world, that which exists around us, terra firma, the universe, the stars, all of that, this whole cosmos, the created physicality in which we live. Now, does it make sense that John here is saying that Jesus would bear the sins of the cosmos, the cosmos, the stars, the earth, the dirt, the plants, the trees? No, it doesn't take away that sin. That's not why he came. He didn't come to bear the sin of the cosmos. The cosmos didn't sin. Second, the term world is used to describe the evil system in which we live that is ruled by Satan. Love not the world or the things in the world, and these are the things of the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Everything that sets itself against God, the worldly philosophy, the worldly way of thinking, the worldliness of this, this fallen, depraved, evil system under which we live. Did Jesus come to take away the sin of the evil system in which we live? No. There's a third category, and that speaks of humanity or people. For God so loved the world, not the cosmos, not the evil system, but people in the world, those who inhabit the cosmos. Humanity in general sometimes used to refer to the general public, just the people out there. Sometimes it's used to refer to just a specific group of people in its context. Sometimes it's used to refer to all different types of people. People without distinction, not people without exception, people without distinction. And that is the sense in which John uses it here. He came to bear the sin of the world. What does he mean by world? Humanity in general. And the idea is not just Jews. You see, when a Jew heard the terms Lamb of God, sacrifice, taking away sin, 
How did a Jew think? A Jew said to himself, well, obviously he's speaking of Jews, not Gentiles, not those ungodly, irreligious, pagan, unclean Gentile dogs that are outside the borders of our nation, and some of them even inside the borders of our nation. He's speaking of Jews. And John is saying, no, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not just of the nation of Israel, not just of the elect people of God, the covenant people of Israel, but the sin of the world. He is a Savior that is offered to humanity in general. There is no other Savior. There's not a Savior for Europeans and a Savior for Chinese people and a Savior for North Americans and a Savior for Jews. If anybody in the world is to be saved, it will be saved through this Savior because He is the Savior who takes away the sin of the world. And it is offered to humanity in general. Not all people without exception. Listen, and listen carefully. Jesus did not take away the sin of every person who has ever lived. When He died, He did not take away Pharaoh's sin. And thus, make Pharaoh innocent so that Pharaoh no longer is in hell. Jesus did not empty out hell by bearing and taking away all of the sins of those who were in hell at the time He was on the cross. Nor does John mean here that all people will then be saved because all people have had their sins removed and therefore all people are forgiven. No. It is the language of sufficiency. His death on the cross was adequate, sufficient to pay the price for the sin of the whole world. Whatever the number of the elect is that God will save in time, whatever that number is, I don't know what it is. No man living knows what it is. Only God knows what the number of the elect is. But had God chosen to save all of the elect plus one person, no more sacrifice would need to be offered. Why? It is sufficient. It is sufficient to bear all sin. All sin can be forgiven with that one sacrifice. It is sufficient to atone for the sins of every man, every woman, every child who will ever live during human history. Ever. It is infinite in its sufficiency. Infinite in its power. Infinite in its ability to save. Unlimited in all of those ways. But listen, for whom does the death of Christ avail? To whom is the death of Christ actually applied and efficacious? And to who does it actually save? Those who believe. It doesn't save unbelievers. It only actually avails and only actually forgives and is only applied to those who will believe. It is sufficient for the whole world. No other sacrifice for sin is necessary. But whom does the death of Christ forgive? Only those who believe. And we offer the Gospel, we offer the death of Christ to the whole world. Because we cannot, nor will we ever say, He died for me, but He didn't die for you. His death takes away sin of the world. Humanity in general. It is sufficient enough. But listen, it will not take away the sin of those who will not believe. You only get it taken away when you believe. It only is applied to you when you believe. Those who die in their sin die not because the death of Christ is not powerful enough to save them. No, no. Those who die in their sin die in their sin not because the death of Christ is not adequate to pay the price for their sin. They die in their sin because they will not believe. Because they love darkness rather than light. And because they will not believe on the name of Him whom the Father sent into the world to save any and all who will believe. 
and we give an invitation to everybody in the world, and we believe the death of Christ is sufficient to save any who will believe, but it will only save those who will believe. This doesn't take away the sin of those who do not believe. Those who die in their sin die in their lost estate without a sin-bearer, without a substitute, without a Savior, without any payment for their sin, and they will bear the wrath of God for their sin for all of eternity. Why? Because the payment of Christ is not applied to them unless they believe. You have to believe. So the language of sacrifice, the language of substitution, and the language of sufficiency. And those of you who are more theologically astute are saying to yourselves, hold on a second, I hear the issues of limited and unlimited atonement coming up in this, and we need to have some discussions about this. We're going to have ample opportunity as we work our way through John to deal with this. And just introducing it today, because I want you to see it, here John uses the term very broad, very general language, speaking of people, not just the Jews. That's what John means when he speaks about salvation coming to the whole world. He means not just the Jewish nation. This lamb is not just for us. This lamb is for the whole world. It's offered to all of the world as a sacrifice and a substitute. So what does this mean for the Jews who were there in John's day? What are the implications for them as John announced the sacrifice that bore the sin of the world? This was not what they were wanting. But this is what they were needing. What they wanted was a king. What they wanted was a deliverer. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted a throne. They wanted to be out from underneath Roman oppression. Messianic expectation was at its peak, at its fever pitch. What they really wanted was a political deliverer. And you notice that the priests and the Levites do not come to John and say, look, are you the one who is going to bear the wrath of God on our behalf? They didn't ask him that, did they? Are you the Christ? What are they asking? We want the king. It seems as if, ironically, the priests and the Levites, who dealt with blood sacrifices every day in the temple, had no understanding at all that they needed someone to bear their sin on their behalf. So when they come to John and say, are you the Christ? They're asking, are you the King? Are you the Anointed One who is to come? And he says, no, I'm not. They didn't understand that they needed a sacrifice. They wanted a political Savior. And John is offering to them, and Jesus is offering a sin Savior, a Savior from their sin. They wanted salvation from Rome. Jesus is offering salvation from sin. They thought they needed salvation from Rome. What they didn't understand was that they needed salvation from their sin. That was the last thing on their mind. But the one thing that they needed most was the thing that God offered to them. It's ironic to me that in today's day, in our world, it's the exact same as it always has been. People are very content and very willing to have a Jesus who is a social reformer who can go in and right all the wrongs of society and dole out uh, uh, social justice and feed the poor and feed the hungry and deliver the oppressed and all that. Liberals are just cozy up to that Jesus, hug and kiss. We're all in the same family, warm their hands. That is all great. Conservatives love to have a Jesus, Jesus who's a political reformer who can get his agenda enshrined as law in Washington and every capital on the face of the earth in order to usher in what they think is going to be a perfect utopian society. People are willing to have a Jesus who's a great moral teacher and has had a profound impact on society and on history and on literature and on all the great things in which we enjoy today. You know, the one thing they do not want? A Christ on a cross. Because that's offensive to them. That tells the world, you need a sacrifice for your sin. And the world doesn't think that they have sin that needs to be bore by anybody. They're willing to have the Jesus who's the social reformer, the political activist, the moral teacher, the good teacher, what they don't want is a sacrifice for their sin. And that's exactly what he came to offer. What are the implications for you and I now today? Let me give you a few of them. 
Oftentimes as Christians, we, we kind of get to the point in our Christian life where we think to ourselves, okay, I, I understand, Jim, the gospel and salvation and the death of Christ and what that means for me and forgiveness. I understand all of that. Now I'm in the kingdom. I'm in Christianity. I've walked through the front door of the gospel, as it were, in the cross. Now what? Now I need something more. I need something extra, something bigger, something, something's next. Give me something else. It's time for me to move beyond those basic elementary principles of the cross and Christ and the gospel. Listen. There is nothing beyond that. You are saved by the gospel. You will live by the gospel. I preach the gospel to myself every day. I am a sinner. I deserve judgment. But there is one who bore the wrath of God on my behalf. I live that every single day. And I never, never go beyond it. And I never, never can go beyond it. This is not the elementary principles of Christianity. This is the citadel. This is the door. This is the cornerstone. It's the beginning. It's the end. It's everything in between. All of it is the cross. All of it is the Lamb of God who bore the sins of the world. All of it is the Lamb of God crucified, sacrificed for me. There's nothing more. Yeah, there's practical things that you and I do. There's new truths that we learn, things that we're not exposed to. But you don't just step in through the cross and then say, now I'm interested in the deep stuff. The cross is the deep stuff. We park at the cross. And we live there until we die. And we glory in the cross. And you can't understand Christ. You can't understand God. You can't understand the Bible until you understand the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And once you understand that, you never want to leave it. Because that's your everything. That's your all. Second implication for us is that you and I can constantly understand and know that He bore my sin. He bore your sin. You will never see the disfavor of the Father. Never. You will never see a frown from the Father in heaven. He bore all of your sin. There is no purgatory. There is nothing for you to pay. There is nothing for you to do. The sufficient sacrifice of the Son of God is enough to take away all your sin, past, present, and future. He bore it. And listen, He also not only bore my sin, but He bore my guilt. He did what the blood of bulls and goats could never do, and that was to cleanse the conscience. The Jews who brought their sacrifices to the altar and the priest had a sacrifice, a lamb that died in their place, and they could say to themselves, my sin now is covered. My sin now is, 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 is covered over by the blood of this innocent substitute who died in my place. But when they turned and walked away, they still had the haunting guilt of a guilty conscience. Jesus Christ bore your sin He bore the punishment for your sin, and He bore the guilt. And I would say this, Christian, if you're kicking yourself up over something you did in your past, you say, I just can't get over that. I just can't forgive myself for that. I just can't move on. You're not understanding the cross. He bore the guilt of that. It's over. The guilt is gone. The sin is gone. You are justified, righteous, standing in the presence of God, never to see the disfavor of your Father in heaven. You will never bear the wrath of your sin because Jesus Christ paid the full penalty for your sin as a believer. Third, or fourth, I forget, the last one I should say, is that this is now my motive for obedience. You see, I don't obey God in order to gain His favor so He'll be happy with me, accept me. Forget it. I can't do that. I'm already accepted in the Beloved. He's already happy with me. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus did on my behalf. He is satisfied as regards to me and my sin and what I have done. 
the Father's justice has been satisfied. And I obey Him not to make Him happy with me, but because He is already pleased with me because I am clothed in the righteousness of His Son by faith. And He is forever pleased with me. Forever pleased with me. Can you get that in your head? That should just carry you through the whole week. It should carry you through the rest of your life. You know what it was that made us fearful of death? It was the haunting realization in the back of our minds that I got a penalty to pay. That's why I feared death. Because I knew I was guilty. I knew I was guilty. And I was horrified at the thought of dying. Because the fear of death, what put the teeth into the fear of death, was the reality of the penalty and the judgment and my guilt. That is what I couldn't get over. My guilt has been removed. The penalty has been removed. The price has been paid. There is no fear of death. If I were to die of an aneurysm right now and step into the presence of Christ, I would not see a frowning father. I would meet a God and a Savior who is completely delighted to see me, completely delighted in me, because my sin has been paid, and in His eyes, I am righteous. I have a hard time even thinking that. But in His eyes, I am righteous. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ did. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that You have atoned for and paid the price for our sin. We thank You that You have provided for us that which we needed more desperately and more intensely than anything else, and that is a sin-bearer, a substitute who would stand in our place and bear our wrath. We thank You that Christ is here introduced as the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, and that it is not just for the Israelites, but it is for all men, and that that salvation is available to all. We thank You that You have included us and that we can count ourselves among those who have a sin-bearer. It is all by Your grace that we are able to do so. And I do pray, O God, that if there are people who are here who have never trusted Christ for salvation, that they would come to the Lamb of God who was slain and who offered a sacrifice on their behalf. What a glorious Gospel, what a glorious Savior You have given to us. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.